Hello and welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. I'm Nari Baker. I'm a Korean adoptee and a mother based on Coast Salish land, otherwise known as the Seattle area. And I'm Robin Park, a Korean adoptee and a therapist living on Tongva, Chumash, and Keech land, otherwise known as the Los Angeles area. Today, we are excited to be here with Ostrid Castro and Maya Papaya Castro Debeni a dynamic duo who are continuously collaborating and co-creating the ways they move through this world together and show up in their mother-daughter relationship. Ostrid has a degree in sociology with an emphasis in adoption. For 20 plus years, she has traveled the country to lead youth groups, present workshops on transracial parenting, talking with children about adoption, and various other workshops focusing on adoption. Prior to creating Adoption Mosaic, Ostrid worked in both the private and public sectors of various adoption organizations. She's also the author of many articles on the subject of adoption and contributed a chapter to the book Parents as Adoptees. And we also have Maya Papaya Castro Debeni. Is currently, she's currently a second year student at San Jose State University. Growing up, Maya has been very involved in the world of adoption because her mother is a Colombian adoptee. Maya speaks Spanish fluently and communicates with her maternal birth family in Colombia. Now, as a young adult, she strives to connect and learn about the parts of her and her mother's culture that were taken from them. Welcome, Astrid and Maya. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. The first question that we ask all of our adoptee parent guests usually is, what are the top two parenting themes that you are meditating on these days? However, maybe a more appropriate question for you two is, what are the top two parent-child relationship themes that you are processing together these days? One of the, the top things that we're processing is separation mm-hmm. and her moving to San Jose and we last year we had a lot of first birthdays and Christmases and Thanksgiving and all of that as this kind of new role that we have as of course mother daughter but where she lives in San Jose and I live in Portland and and what it means for us to navigate the togetherness and the really close bond that we have but also at the same time holding space for growth and separation and mm. and that natural, the empty nester and letting your kid go off and explore and be mm-hmm. their own person, but still really feeling really close and, and wanting to still be really involved in her life. And where where is the balance in that? Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think like on my end, like a theme would be more into the separation, um, which is a big theme more of the communication that comes from that and comes out of that and how I can still keep in contact and how I can involve her in my life, even though I'm not living at her house or super close to her, but like the communication online and how we can see each other. And I think that's a big theme of both of us having to work for that communication. Hmm. For those that are tuning in, you can't see it, but in our screen, we're seeing both of them together. Both of you are together right now. And it's so neat to see that because as you're mentioning this, what it's been like to navigate kind of that differentiation and linkage, right, of being off at school and of having some of those firsts, but yet also still having that home base that you come home to or this connection that 
in, in our conversations together, what really strikes me too is just this really strong communication that you both have really and continuously really work on intentionally in your relationship and how that has really, you know, bridged this, despite the distance, the gap that's happening for you being at college, Maya, but really being able to still stay in, in deep connection and relationship with each other. Yeah. She's, my mom came here to visit me at my, in San Jose and um, this is my first year with like an apartment. So she's um, coming to visit me at my house, which is amazing. <laughs> and she's staying for about a week. So mm, that's so wonderful to see that. Yeah, it sounds like there's, you know, so much change and transition in your relationship. And, you know, in our previous conversation that you had mentioned that the ways that you've connected on such a deep level it is really unique and special to who you are as a mother-daughter duo and as individuals, but that has also taken a lot of intentionality and then also um, kind of some of these practices in your relations, that, such as checking in a lot and texting and the closeness that you've cultivated and also protectiveness just is based in that love. But it's also, I think one of you said that it ultimately comes from a sad place, which is separation from birth family in Colombia and, and adoption kind of as this big piece in, in your lives. And I would just love to hear about that and just kind of how you acknowledge that both of those things, this loving connection, but that there's also trauma intertwined with it. How do you navigate that together? I mean, I think most teenagers do have that where like their parents are like, where are you in the calling? Mm -hmm. um, but now as an adult, like most young adults don't experience that with their parents or with their mother. I think for me, having a little bit of grace and understanding, I think is really important. And I do understand, or maybe I don't understand, but I, I see why and I see the reason behind that anxiety and fear. I think that's a completely acceptable answer to what to the trauma of separation. Hmm. Part of me being gone and being so far away is being more proactive and sharing my location with her and trying to be on my phone more. And at the same time, like she calls or remember all the times, like I told her I was going to call at this specific time. But I think it's kind of a balance of we're both trying, we're Mm -hmm. I mean, the communication, we're both trying to make sure we know that we're okay. The, some of the things that she was like say, saying, like have empathy and and support her and understand and, and all of those things. I mean, I think it's it's wonderful and our relationship is really wonderful in that way. And yet there's this mother-child relationship that I think we've crossed in some ways that now that she's almost 20 years old, you know, she's living in a different place and the communication and like, it's more, we, and we talk about this a lot is like, it's moved into a different kind of realm of friendship, mother daughtership, this navigating this aspect of it is something like, I wouldn't mind having a friend or a partner saying some of the things that Maya said and to yet to have your kid say some of those things isn't, mm. isn't easy to hear. Cause it's like, Oh, that means I, I have to be vulnerable or I have to allow her to 
build up whatever it is that she needs to be able to be in this space of saying, I'm trying my best and I'm supporting, trying to support you. And I understand the trauma and the genetic trauma that I like all of these things that I wish she didn't have to even understand as well as she understands. Hmm. Also, I think to go back to like the original um, question that I think there are also a lot of the genetic and maybe just passed on like how I was raised. Mm -hmm. So I think I definitely experienced part part of that too. And like, Mm -hmm. I understand and I have empathy because I've experienced that kind of like, I have, I can't lose people near me. And I, my mind goes to the worst in some experiences because I'm so terrified that something's happened to somebody. And so I think because I understand some of that, I can have that empathy. Mm But I definitely believe that's genetic or as a result of the trauma that happened to my mom and to my grandmother, birth grandmother. And I think that was definitely passed on to me unconsciously and in some parts, like through my Hmm. genes and generational trauma Mm, and that. Intergenerational. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you've mentioned that now. I've I've heard kind of this genetic mirroring or the ways in which I know also with Astrid, you've been in reunions since I think 2012, right? So it's been a while. And wondering about kind of as you are mentioning this, Maya, and you're both talking about what that's been like, kind of seeing that the profound experience of you seeing your maternal grandmother, first birth grandmother. And also seeing the impact that's having on your mom while simultaneously having your own experience around that, recognizing then seeing the way that the kind of, you know, impact that adoption trauma has had in separation. And now here comes reunion. Can you share more from both of your perspectives about what that was like? Because I think this is where, again, this intergenerational piece comes up from the past and is going into the forward part of kind of the relationship with your generations together and how that's impacting one another. Can you just speak more about what that's been like for for both of you? Yeah. It also is that took a lot of empathy on my part and a lot of understanding just and yeah, and about that situation. But it was also something that it was it was definitely hard. I was very young and I was nine in that situation I speak Spanish and I was hearing everything from like in in Spanish so I was hearing not the translation of it I was hearing exactly what Mm -hmm. she was sitting my birth grandmother was saying and it was it is definitely trauma and a lot of separation there was a lot of things that I heard that maybe I didn't quite understand and then later I did it was definitely very hard and I would never trade it for anything. I think that's brought me so much understanding and I'm able to be very much more empathetic towards my birth grandmother just to like understand what actually had happened instead of that kind of like a child version that usually I think is told. But it wasn't easy, I think, for any of us. But having that, having to be there for my mom to support her, I think I got to kind of shift it to more my mom and then reflect and how like that affected me later on. And so I think if I really was like thinking um, only about myself, I think that would have been a little bit more stressful, been like, how does this affect me? But how is it affecting my mom and being able to support her through that and 
like rise above it kind of like I was outside of my body and be able to kind of like see everything um Mm. was definitely something that I'm really grateful I had experienced and having like that genetic mirroring and meeting my birth grandmother was an experience that was amazing and Mm. seeing somebody who looked like my mom and being like you guys look exactly the same was um Mm. crazy and something that I've never experienced um, and I, I never have, and I don't think I probably ever will for mm. a big portion of my life, just because it was one of those things that it's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity, not opportunity, but experience. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was definitely a hard part. I think all of our lives, because it was such like a big traumatic thing that just came back to um, everybody. And it was also an amazing experience. That's really good to hear you say that because I don't really believe in absolutes. I don't think absolutes, they rarely exist, right? And so I hope you know that when I say this, that you re- that you get to reserve your the right to change your mind and how you feel about that experience. Mm. I've heard adoptees talk about their decision to or not to bring their child along mm. to their birth birth country trip or reunion or no, I want to experience this first by myself. And I had not made the decision that this was a trip that I was going to go and search and find my birth mother. I had kind of pushed pause on searching. I had searched for about 15 years Mm -hmm. looking for her. And Maya was the one who said to me, I really want to go to Bucaramanga. We went every other year to Colombia when she grew her growing up, but we always went to the coast. We always went to Mm. Cartagena. And Mm. for any listeners who've been there know it's this beautiful coastal uh, beach. You're hanging out and what is there not to love? And my goal Mm -hmm. was to, and I even said this to Maya's dad, we were married at the time. And I said um, to him, I want our child to fall in love with Colombia in a way I didn't get a chance to. Mm. Uh, I didn't travel there. I didn't experience it. I didn't speak Spanish. And there was, you know, a lot of the things, I mean, every generation does this of like, here are the pieces of my childhood that I want to bring into my parenting. And here are the pieces of my childhood that I don't want to bring into into my, my parent, how I'm going to parent my child. It was really clear to me that I wanted Maya to experience Colombia and um, and feel a part of it and feel Colombiana if she wanted, if that she would have access to knowing what that meant. And so we traveled every other year. Her dad is Italian, so every other year we would go to Italy. And we were super fortunate that we had the means to do that. Maya was really familiar with going to Colombia. And this was one of the years that we were going. and. Before we booked the tickets, she said, I really want to see Bucaramanga, where you were born. Mm. And I said, that's eh, not really a super fun place to go. There's not a beach. That's not, let's, let's not. And she's like, no, let's. And her dad at the time was like, yeah, no, let's. I haven't been there either. That would be really great. Let's go all together. And so we went. And so a, it was many years later that I said to Maya, I feel like your persistence in saying I want to go to Bucaramanga was a big reason why we found Carmenza. Mm. And it was, it was, we then the pretty much the entire trip, we were on a little adventure, right? It was like, 
we would meet this person and they would tell us to go here. And then we went there and it, it was, it felt like a fun adventure, a, a way to see a, a city. That and also we saw a lot of things like, like the orphanage that I don't think I really thought about the reality of my mom being adopted um, and separated from a, a developing country and mm. going to see like the orphanage, I think was something that was really hard and it was something that I didn't, we think about so it was it did was like for me it sounded like a little fun adventure and it was because we met a lot of people like you know helping us figure everything out and at the same time mm. realizing how deep the trauma actually ran mm. and how big of a thing adoption is in developing countries and just in general in the world and orphanages don't like there's no orphanages in the United States. So I had never been to an orphanage um, until I went to the one that my mom had went to. And that was, um, I think, and seeing there was still kids there. There was still, it was still an orphanage. And um, it was hard to not want to take them all home. Huh? Yeah. Which sounds awful that like, I'm like, I'm not going to take 30, like however many kids like, I was a child, you know, but like, and then playing with them, I remember speaking with them and they were like half of my Spanish because I had a weird accent, but <sighs> you could see like the trauma that it really caused. And you can mm -hmm. see it was really hard to watch. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to watch and to be there. But it, as a kid, it was like, we were really good at playing games. So we'd always make everything into an adventure. My mom was really good at that. And so everything was fun. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it was, there, was a, there was a lot of times we had to really sit with the reality hmm. of searching. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing so much from both of you about building compassion for each other and bringing just a, a depth of honesty with each other and seeing each other in these different ways as whole people and building that from a young age. I mean, I, I think what you said, Astrid, about adoptees who may want to see their birth countries or do birth searches alone without their children. On one hand, it really makes a lot of sense because it can feel so out of control, especially the reality of, of landing in birth country, especially if you're not fluent in the language, is that you are completely out of control. And then the level of emotionality that can st start to feel so overwhelming. But on the other hand, what I'm hearing from you, Maya, is that it was this profound, priceless experience to be able to learn alongside your mom and to have that experience firsthand, the reunion, and also these long-term, at this point now, relationship with reconnecting to Columbia, the depth of that, the impact that has had on your life, just really honoring that you decided to take that challenge together head on. And there's been an incredible amount of growth and learning and connection because of that. And so just the courage that you guys have cultivated together. In our previous conversation, Maya, you had, I think you called it protective jealousy upon meeting Astrid's birth mom, your birth grandmother. And and I love the way that you said that, that there are all these different types of jealousy. It was actually a selfless or a protective jealousy and not a self-centered jealousy. But just wondering about that for you. And then also for you, Astrid, 
you know, being a mother, wanting to support your daughter, you're both growing through something so huge, but also you're a human being with a capacity that is limitless and also limited, you know, when you're overwhelmed with emotion and confronting your own trauma in this new way with reunion and just kind of wanting to hear more from both of you about that experience. Um, I think that being so young and not really understanding everything was like a, a form of trauma that I, I had to experience. And I think that having a new person come into my life at that age when everything was rock sliding down the mountain, I feel like it was just not falling apart, but also at the same time, everybody was going through a lot of things all at once. And having somebody new that, like I said, like it's the genetic or the racial mirroring was amazing to see. And it was like a feeling that I've never felt before. And at the same time, it was scary that somebody was taking my mom away from me because I personally, I saw their connection and I saw their uh, racial mirroring, but I didn't see myself in my birth grandmother because I'm a pretty white passing. She was a woman who had lost her babies and that of course, what she wanted was just to get her babies back. And she was my grandmother, but at the same time, she had just re- like met my mother and that was like the central focus. And I felt like somebody was taking my mother away from me, even if she wasn't. I think I'm very lucky to be able to now like look at that um, with a lot of empathy. But in the moment I had like jealousy and I had it just all of these awful things had been said that I understood for firsthand and I didn't get it to be translated into like a children's version mm. that I think just kind of fueled like that my mother is mine and we I wanted just to have the same relationship with everybody but just add another person and of course that's not always possible relationship change especially like if it's a birth grandmother coming back and like that's a whole nother dynamic I, I definitely felt like I wanted my mother to still be just mine, kind of. I'm an only child, so that's I think an only child experience. Um, but that wasn't possible. One of the things that I think is really important to know about that time in my life that was center, but on the sideline because we didn't have language to really talk about it was that. I was unpacking information that I had found out about my identity and about how our mother lost us and in the way that she lost us and the trauma and the the violence of all of that. I was learning about that and realizing that now, 11 years later, I talk a lot about the rebirth, if you will, of my own sense of self and to do that when you are a mother of an eight, nine-year-old, yeah, I, is no easy task for one. And I didn't do it gracefully, nor I'm not saying I should have. I'm not dead, but I, it wasn't graceful. It was, I was rediscovering who I was as a person. And I, within a couple of years of finding Carmenza, my, uh, Maya's dad and I were getting a divorce. I was closing Adoption Mosaic. I was in a really unhealthy relationship. 
with someone that I shouldn't have been in a relationship with. And, and Maya was on the sideline of all of that. So one of the things that I said to Maya that no matter when the time comes, if she has a question about that period in her, in her life, in our life, that she gets to ask any question. There's no question that is not, I wouldn't answer. I think one of the reasons we are as close as we are is because we've gone through this really traumatic thing together. Right. I mean, yeah. in some ways it's kind of like trauma bonding, yeah. right? <laughs> a healthy, well, well, now it's a healthy <laughs> version of trauma bonding. Oof. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's that jealousy that was happening and, and, and how I navigated that and saw that was, I remember feeling like my loyalty, the sounds that really not super fair. And my loyalty was to Maya. And I was hurt by the fact that my mother was wanting the kind of attention that I was like, you're a grown woman. You are a grown ass woman. Why are you saying, I want to sit next to Ostrid? You've had 11 years, Maya, to sit next to your mama. Now it's my turn. And I'm like, uh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not fair. That's not okay. And yet balancing this other thing of like, oh, it's so good to be like, so wanted by this person and desired by this person and understanding, like Maya was saying, the trauma that she, she was picking up where she left off her four-year-old and her six-year-old being taken from her, right? In this violent way. And so you can't do both of those things justice. You just can't. If somebody figures out how to do those two things justice, I will be really grateful for the people behind us. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging what that is like in the moment when you're, I'm thinking of what it's like to dual process in real time, all this information you're getting that's new, that's, you know, new information you're soaking into your body, trying to integrate and make sense of that and really protect your daughter, protect your own right self too, and how you're juggling and navigating both sides of the moon in many ways. And I just am imagining what that must've felt like for all of you. And really, like you said, being able to come through that together and then really have each other to process, to reflect. I mean, you were so intimately a part of that experience together and now being able to talk about it and even just see how that has shaped and shifted you in many ways, or also just noticing the ways that the different types of jealousy that can exist and you can hold all of that. It's all true in, in your experiences, but I really, yeah, there's so much, Astrid, that you also bring up that I, I think is just so, you know, my adoptee body really feels what it's like when you're trying to always balance kind of these different relationships, right? Um, one that you've maybe yearned for in different ways and also one that you really are just trying to honor so much in that moment. So I, I think that's something we often don't think about, you know, what that's like in reunion. And then when we do have children in the future, what it's like if, if they're either part of that experience or later integrated into that. And, and how do you navigate that together? 
I do want to say one of the things that Maya has mentioned a couple of times of speaking Spanish. Um, I do not speak Spanish fluently. Mm-hmm. Her dad and I had decided when she was in kindergarten uh, that there was a neighborhood school that just happened to have, it's a public school that happened to have a language immersion, Spanish immersion. And in my mind, I was just saying to myself, I want my kid to retain, be able to speak Spanish. And um, she was speaking Italian at the time. Maya is trilingual. And um, and so it made sense grammatically for her to mm-hmm. kind of the structure of language and what she had been learning. And we had only spoken to her in Italian for the first four, five years of her life. And then she went to a Spanish immersion. So the transition actually made a lot of sense for her to go to a school that structured the language structure was similar to the one that she was had learned how to speak as her first language. Mm. That all being said, I did not have the vision or any thoughts previously that, uh, you know, someday that she would be able to meet our birth mother or that she would be a translator. Like none of those, if anything, it was like, Oh, like so many parents who send their kids to immersion school that don't speak the language of the immersion school. They, I was that same parent was like, I'll learn right along my kid. Like I'll learn the language just as she's learning it. This will be fun. Yeah. That did, didn't happen. And yeah, that rarely happens actually. Um, what I've learned over the years is rarely does that actually happen. And, and there's this whole conversation around trauma and relearning our birth language mm-hmm. and what that experience is for us to relearn our birth language, especially when we, when we were verbal before we came and then lost our verbal language. So there's a whole discussion around that, that we could mm-hmm. probably just do a a discussion, a podcast about the decisions that we made and the, what I would have now that I know what I know, maybe what would have been really helpful for me to have done. And that was Mm. really learn Spanish alongside her or before. And yet that's just not a fair ask because for those of us who have lost our language in the way we did, it's not an easy conversation for us to say, oh, we're just going to go learn this language. That's how I learned Italian. I just, I met Maya's dad. He was Italian, born and raised. And I was like, oh, this will be cool. And that's the way I looked at it. And I learned it pretty quickly living there. And, but I have taken Spanish 101. Mm. I speak birth mother Spanish now. <laughs> And I say it's um, it's a Spanish only a birth mother can understand. <laughs> and words that I think even people who people are mastered. mastered Spanish or even fluent don't know some words that we know specifically mm-hmm. because they don't have to speak to their birth mother after. Yeah, they don't have to ask, <laughs> was it a vaginal birth or a cesarean? Yeah. And um, that's not right? a common language that uh, somebody who's a second language speaker learns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Also, I think a big part of that, of my mom not speaking Spanish and I did, is that I heard everything, like I said, firsthand and my mom didn't. My mom got a trans, mm-hmm. or we had somebody who translated her and I was in the room and my dad also, he speaks Spanish one-on-one. So he understands 
bathroom, can I use bathroom? He doesn't understand the same word. So he was also hearing it from the translator. Mm. And I was in the same side as a translator. I was near him, but I was understanding the words that my birth grandmother was saying. And that was something that I know my, if I think my mom had thought and my dad had thought about it and like, we knew like, oh, we were going to go to Colombia to search. That was something that would not have happened. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at, that like, if you had learned Spanish, that would not have happened. Um, and it was honestly just like, I remember that day as like, kind of like if you put a movie on like triple the speed and everything's like, everything's just moving so fast. And like, there's no time to stop and be like, okay, let's all go through how we're feeling right now. Or like, what did we just hear? It was just, we're here, we're hearing it. Everybody's meeting everybody. And it was just um, so fast. And so I think that I know that my mom would not have wanted that to happen. She would have probably stopped that. But it was one of those situations where you don't have time to think about anything. You're just in the moment and that's all you're living. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a hard time for all of us. And um, it's something that I think that communication wasn't, we weren't able to have that communication. I think all the times that I had trauma in that, like with the jealousy and all that, it was because we weren't able to sit down. It was just happening real time and we were just living it and trying to keep up. But it was kind of the reality of that situation specifically that we weren't able to stop and kind of reflect and then decide what we were going to do or yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I'm hearing so much about just the cyclical nature of healing and trauma. It's moving forward, but it's also moving back. My friend actually just sent me this article that she wrote, and she quotes this uh, Korean feminist poet that says, my daughter is the mother of all my mothers. Mm. You know, although you may be the latest iteration, Maya, of the castral women, you know, that you're also leading the way. You're the youngest, but you're also leading the way mm. towards a new type of healing, a new type of connection, and creating bonds and bridges for your ancestors, both living and passed away, and for yourself and for your your future generations as well, whoever comes after you. And and then also for us, this adoptee community family that you know, what you are contributing as a mother-daughter duo together in your work, but also just in the way that you're modeling your relationship and the way you've chosen to do this healing together is such a gift and such a mothering of us in the, the greater sense of that word. So I just want to say thank you for this work that you're doing, how the ripple effects of the healing and the love and the, and the connection and the willingness to go through these challenges and these darker spaces, you know, it just, it, it brings this bounty to everyone around you, family and also chosen family alike. So just putting that out there. They work, we're kind of getting close to the end of our, of our time here, but I did really want to touch on Astrid, your professional life. You've, you've dedicated your life to supporting the adoptee community and providing resources and being that person that people look to and to ask questions and to, and, and you've held so much space with Adoption Mosaic and 
you've just contributed so much. And the gift of, of that that I've heard from you, one of many, is that you have this developed this adoption fluency for yourself, but then you've also passed it on to Maya and in your relationship and you've cultivated this adoption fluency together. And so Maya, who's not adopted, also is adoption fluent, which is rare. Uh, I think so many of us adoptees, you know, rarely meet somebody who's not adopted that's also adoption fluent. And just wondering kind of like when we say adoption fluency, what does that mean? And then also for our listeners, and then also how did you develop this? And could you illuminate that a little bit maybe for parents or just people in relationships that are close with non-adoptees, but maybe particularly with kids? Yeah. My parents had always said, if you ever want to talk about your birth mom, if you ever want to talk about adoption or anything or what's happening and regarding race or we're here, we're, we're willing and we're able. And the problem was, was we didn't, as a community, didn't have the language to actually talk about it. Right. Mm. So it was, the invitation was there. My parents knew that it was important to hold that space and say, you can talk about this, but they didn't have the language to teach us how to talk about it. So here we were, you know, I think my sister and I were kind of in our own separate worlds living within, I mean, we were, we're biological sisters and we were adopted together. We came to the United States together, all of those things. And people say to us all the time, oh, well, at least you had each other to talk to. Hmm. We didn't because we didn't have the language. It was kind of like as an adult, I remember in my tw- early 20s, somebody had said, asked me a question if, if we knew if my sister and I had the same father and birth father. And I remember being like, oh, I've never thought of that. Like, mm-hmm. it, and it didn't, it never had dawned on me. And I just said to the person, just kind of like that inner, that really quick response. And I said, yeah, of course we do. Like, that's, that's a dumb question. Of course we do. Because I couldn't, I couldn't hold space for the fact that maybe we didn't because I, that had never crossed my mind. And so here I am in my twenties. I know how babies are made. I know that two siblings can have two different mothers and two different fathers and be half siblings and so forth and so on. But that didn't dawn on me. I called my sister probably within a half an hour of talking to this person. And, uh, and I said, Mia, have you ever thought that maybe we had different fathers? And she had the exact same reaction that I did, which was, yeah, no, no, of course we don't No, We have the same father. And we had no language to talk even then about what how do we unpack this? Why is this scary for us to even mm-hmm. to even hold space for? You know, it's this perpetual adoptees. We are clean slate, blank slates when we come, and we don't we don't have this existence prior to, mm-hmm. and we don't have language to talk about who you know these things, the maybes, the ifs, the I don't knows, the what you know. And so, it was really clear to me to create language for myself, for my, um, for the work that I was doing. Uh, at the time it was an adoption mosaic. I was writing curriculum. I basically wrote curriculum around what I felt that I needed when I was young. And what I needed was I needed language. I needed to not be in my twenties. 
having this in isolation with just my sister and I and not having a community around us that we could talk to about why was it so scary for us to even unpack this that of course maybe we have different fathers like so creating the curriculums that I have have been really based out of what it was that I felt like we needed initially when we, when I was first creating a curriculum. And then I just carried that into um, when I, with Maya, I had, I was already working at the Oregon Post-Adoption Resource Center. The language that I was learning, the new terms um, and so forth, I was bringing home all the time and talking about it openly. When Maya came along, I had started uh, Adoption Mosaic when she was about three years old. I remember when Maya was three, she had used some language that it was clear that she was starting to understand the concept or not the concept, but the language. She understood the language before she understood the concept, which is Mm. totally normal, right? That's language development. And so we're in the kitchen and Maya says to me, ask me if if she has a birth mother. And um, Mm. when I tell her she does, her eyes get really big and she gets really excited. And she was like, well, where is she? Let's go, let's go say hi. And um, I was like, I'm your birth mom. And she was just like, oh, okay. Mm. (laughs) Like, because, you know, that mirroring, which what I had mirrored to her was, is that I didn't know my birth mother. Um, and she wanted to be like her mom, which is what mirroring is all about, right? Mm. And I use that story, of course, with Maya's permission as a way to share share with people, this is what it looks like to introduce mm. this language. Like you don't have to have mm. it perfected for yourself as an adopted person because we haven't had space to figure out like what feels comfortable? I got to try these jeans on. I got to wear them a little bit in order for mm. it to feel like they're they're part of me. And and I feel the same way that I realized in that moment, like, oh my gosh, my kid, she's three years old. She doesn't, she doesn't really understand this stuff. She, however, I think the message was that she had been introduced to the language enough mm. that she could use the language. And then I, and then share it openly. And then mm-hmm. I could then redirect it and be like, okay, let's sit down. It looks like you don't really understand what the term birth mother means. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me tell you a little bit more about my upbringing and what, you know, why your grandparents look different and just having these conversations. And mm-hmm. so just practicing. With but I was technically right that I did have a birth mother. It's just that <laughs> I never... <laughs> You were never adopted. Yeah, never adopted. Maya is the product of me practicing my own adoption story. I didn't get to practice it as a young kid because we didn't have languages. Maya ended up being the person that I tried to bring it down to developmental stages without it being too scary that you're going to lose me because I think I'm seeing, I'm seeing other people practice themselves and where they use language that I think could be really scary hearing like, well, we were, I was separated from my mother. Well, that could be really scary for a little kid to hear, but navigating all of that and figuring Mm -hmm. out how to do that is really individualistic. I think you have to know your kid. You have to, 
know what, how much of the story you're willing to share, what's comfortable, what's not. And then I will just say one more thing is, is that I think practicing with my adult adoptee community is another We've done so much of our adoption in isolation. Hmm. We've lived in isolation. We've lived in racial isolation. We lived in adoptee isolation, critically thinking adoptee isolation, even for those who I know a lot of adoptees who are like, yeah, I used to go to, um, you know, the Holt camp or I used to go to the picnics, adoptee picnics that our agencies put on. So I was around other adoptees or parents are like, yeah, we raised our kids around other adoptees. And my question is, is did you raise them around other critically thinking adoptees that help them have this language? Because I can sit with Nari and Robin and we can all sit and never talk about the elephant in the room. Mm. And sometimes it's fun and appropriate and we don't want to talk about adoption, but... <laughs> So many of us never experienced being around other adoptees who had language to teach us and model to us what it means to be adopted and give us the language so we can unpack and figure that out for ourselves. So families who are seeking su supportive adoptees for their kids that are also adopted, I think it's really important to find mentor adoptees who are critical thinkers mm. around adoption, who know mm. how to speak adoption mm -hmm. language, <laughs> adoptee language. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, the short answer would be that I was just there mm. and how I developed adoption fluency and like just is that I was in the community and I was placed, even though I wasn't adopted, I was in like this community just full of just the adoption constellation and mostly adoptee, adoptees. And I think just being in that community at the, like after a while, like, like she was saying, I was learning all these words that I didn't really know what they meant, mm. like by practice, but I knew like the words. And then I would come home and I'd be like, Oh, I learned this word. And I was part of, all of the I try to be part of all the like programs my mom was like going through so like of the kids groups I want to be part, like I've always wanted to be a part of a kids group but um <laughs> they were adopting groups so I like I would watch the movies with them and then I would like leave and like, I would like after I would help the cleanup and eat some of the snacks and it just like I really just wanted to be a part of this community and I've like I wanted to be a part of all the things my mom was doing in her work and I was really interested because my mom never turned a question away. Like I could ask any question I wanted and she would find a way to age appropriately, mm. tell me an answer to talk about it. Mm. Because of that, I was just, I wanted to be a part of everything because I knew that everything was really interesting and I knew that she would answer my questions. And I think that there is a lot of scary words in adoption yeah. and there's a lot of adult words. Mm. Getting things explained to me and like a, a way appropriate for my age was very important. Mm -hmm. Made me really interested because it didn't seem scary that what had happened to my mom. It seemed like there were, I knew that there was a lot of trauma. I think also because I personally wasn't adopted, it was more of like I was separated. I was in the community, but I was, uh, my mom was adopted. And so like people ask, oh, how did you, how do you know all these things? Because 
I still am part of the, I'm still part of the community. I, most of my community and my chosen family are adoptees. Hmm. So I know all of these things just because I'm there. I just want to learn and I want to be a part of it. Um, But I got to that place because of like the openness, my mom's work and the people around her and my chosen family and the openness to keep having conversation with me. It's been really helpful to me in a really big part of my life. And it's always going to be a part of my life. Mm-hmm. I identify myself as a child of an adoptee. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we're still like, it's a new term that we, I mean, a couple other children of adoptees kind of had to think about what are we in the adoption community and the adoptee like consul- adoption consolation. And that's how I identify myself. And I see adoption as a huge part of my life. One of the mm. biggest parts of my life and part of my upbringing because it was always there. And I was, um, that was who I was around most of the time. Mm. And you were mm. invited to the conference. I was, yeah. Because yeah. there was sometimes that people were like, oh, this little kid wants to be part of the um, <laughs> workshop. Like that. And they're like, okay, this is fun, right? <laughs> but I actually really wanted to be there. And I actually like, sometimes I knew things that they were like wise like she she knows right um but I was invited and that made the difference that made the difference Mm -hmm. of me wanting to be there not wanting to be there wanting to be there as a helper and as a learner than just somebody who has sit in the back because my mom has a a workshop or whatever but Mm -hmm. it's so meaningful to be in community with you and with you, Astrid, as well, or just to be able to reflect on what community looks like, feels like, how you've been a part of that since day one, and and really just also what that feels like as things are evolving, as language. I know we've talked so much about the evolution of language or the complexity of it, you know, from our birth language, first language, to also, you know, what it's like when we don't necessarily have that access to it, or there's the psychological pieces around that that can make it really complicated, right? I can speak to that too. Korean language is something I both love and loathe. It's such a a complex relationship with language, but I think really what I love hearing from the both of you is just how you've really continued to build this legacy of your stories together, also within our community, um, modeling so much in our community, what this looks like, right? And how you've really put so much of yourselves into this to make this so communicative, so collaborative, always co-creating, right? Your stories together, even though you both have separate stories, but really the the way that they're um, united in so many ways. So I, it just is really, really meaningful to see that. Um, and to hear what that's been like for you along your journeys. You know, in closing, we always ask folks, because you're both very busy, you know, being at college and Ostrid, you know, doing the amazing things with Adoption Mosaic. Um, Aside from those things, what are some of the other labors of love that you're doing these days? We were talking about language. Language is something that I've always had a really strong connection with. And I'm going to school. I'm, I'm majoring in international business and I'm minoring in Spanish and hopefully minoring in also Italian. I think finding my motivation for that and also just continuing that and seeing like like when I also when I speak to my birth grandmother and she doesn't quite understand like why I moved for school or like what that is but just 
knowing what I'm doing for my ancestors and for my legacy or the legacy my mom has built. I'm really excited about that. And that's something that I'm just excited to keep doing and Mm. to see where that takes me. Yeah. And so I, I also like just keep making my language and I'm never stopped learning about my cultures. And that's a big thing that I moved down to San Jose for that specifically to just be in an area where people speak Spanish and that has changed my life. And I don't think I'll ever go back somewhere where they don't speak Spanish, like just as much as they do in California or hopefully even more, I'll go somewhere where people, oh, everybody speaks Spanish, but that's like, an amazing experience that I'm having and I've been making amazing connections with people just because of that and because of me wanting to learn and just soak up all of that language and culture that I'm around. I love that. Aside from building Adoption Mosaic and making it sustainable, which is really my labor of love um, and of course being Maya's mom and supporting her I would say those are the two things that that drive me and wake me up in the morning and get me motivated and excited for my day. This last year, I decided I was going to start exploring Oregon through hiking in a way that I hadn't before. And my birthday month is the entire month of September. And so I asked my friends to show me a hiking spot each weekend and I like that tradition. So I think maybe hiking more and exploring and traveling and getting to travel with Maya is one of the things we both really like to travel together. And we discovered this last, I mean, we always knew this, but this last summer we discovered we actually really like to travel together. Wow. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been such an honor to spend time with you and just feeling so blessed to be able to hear part of your story and just how much you you've given is just such a huge gift. I just, I know that Robin and I both wish you so much, so many blessings and gifts to come and just want to just say a huge thank you for all the things that you're doing for our community, uh, leading the way and contributing and really shaping the narrative in such a positive way that's supportive and listening and grounding in a real authentic wholeness. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting us. And this is, I don't want to say, is this our first interview together? It is. Yeah. Yeah. We've been on panels together. Wow. Mm -hmm. What an honor. Didn't realize that this is, yeah, your first interview together. And I mean, when we just thought of, yeah, really bringing you both, it was an absolute must. And so thank you for letting us really hold this space. It's been so wonderful to be in community with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into the Labor of Love podcast. Please like us, share us, and follow us on Instagram at Labor of Love Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and leave us a review if you feel moved to do so. We also want to take a moment to shout out to our amazing donors. It has been so wonderful to feel the love and support of our growing community. We appreciate you. 
Much gratitude and thanks to Stephen, Joy, Violet, Marie, Angela, Shoop, and Annette. And if you would like to join these generous donors in supporting the pod, please donate on Venmo at Labor of Love Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes.